section, chapter 1 through 12, focuses on Jesus' public ministry. It lasts about three years or so that he's traveling around ministering to people. And then the second half of it, beginning in chapter 13 and culminating in chapter 21, focuses on the final moments of Jesus' life as he's preparing to to basically give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, the, The final things he wants to let his disciples know, then his arrest, the puppet trial that he endures, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. Now, uh, in, B, in chapter 13, we began a conversation where Jesus is kind of, this is his last opportunity to encourage and prepare his disciples for what's about to come, right before he gets arrested. He began in chapter 13 by showing them, he's going, you're going to be my representative, so I want to show you the type of servant leadership I want you to, to kind of live out. And so he gets down and he washes their feet as a tangible reminder. This is the type of leadership I'm looking for you guys to emulate. And then in chapter 14, he begins to tell them point blank, listen, I am going to be leaving you. I'm going to be going to the Father, preparing a place for you. But don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to be with you. And at the very end of chapter 14, and by the way, this would probably freak out his disciples just a little bit. One of the things is, as our small group has been going through these chapters in John again and again, what keeps coming back to us is that so often his disciples and everybody who, who even called him the Messiah had a very different perspective of what the Messiah was supposed to be than what Jesus thought. They were all thinking political Messiah. Here's going to be God's anointed redeemer of Israel who's going to reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world. And Jesus is thinking, no, I'm not here to throw off Rome. I'm here to throw off sin and death and all the things that come with it. So his disciples at this point are probably having a, a, a little bit of a, an expectation concern. It's like, wait a minute, this doesn't jive. What do you mean you're leaving us? You're going to go be with the Father? What does that mean? You're supposed to be with us. You're supposed to be the king. You're supposed to reestablish Israel. You're supposed to be on the throne. What's going on here? And the very last line of chapter 14, right before we start in chapter 15, Jesus says something really interesting. He says, come now, let us leave. Remember, they've been in an upper room sharing a meal together. Now, I know that enough times my wife will come up to me and go, hey, Eric, it's time to go. And then one of us gets into a conversation for another 45 minutes before we ever see the door. I know that come, let us leave does not necessitate that he is and his disciples leave The upper room. However, John does not typically give information that's not necessary or important. So I envision that Jesus now leads his disciples out of the upper room and they probably would walk down the stairs through the city of Jerusalem. It's the it's the Passover festival. So probably up by the temple, there's a lot of, you know, rowdiness going on, people worshiping God and people, you know, talking and giving alms to the poor and whatnot. And Jesus would probably lead his disciples through the quiet streets, a couple of small torches guttering with them, just giving a little bit of light. And they would leave the walls of Jerusalem and travel down into the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is a valley that runs between the walls of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is ultimately going to wind up in a couple of chapters to spend the rest of the evening praying with God. And if, you were, if he were to walk through the Kidron Valley, he would be surrounded on both sides by old, ancient vineyard, vineyards. Lots of grape vines that would be growing there that have given off a lot of grapes for generation upon generation. And I can just envision Jesus stopping by one of these grape vines because, remember, Jesus loved to use props in his teaching. 
When he fed 5,000 people, he had just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and he feeds 5,000 people, and then he stands up and goes, listen, I am the true bread of life, and anybody who partakes of me will never hunger again. Or later on during one of the, the festivals, during the Festival of Tabernacles, when they had these giant candelabras that they would light during this festival and would give light to all of Jerusalem, Jesus stands in the temple courts, literally in the shadow of these candelabras, and says, listen, I am the light of the world. Anybody who walks by me will not walk in darkness. So I can see, even though scripture doesn't tell us this, I could see Jesus stopping by one of these ancient vines, grabbing a tendril, and his, in his kind of confused, despondent disciples with their torches are kind of sitting there and the flame is guttering and she's giving just a little bit of light. And he says, listen, guys. And then he begins in chapter 15. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean or pruned. Clean and pruned are interchangeable words. They're both the same word. You are already clean or pruned because of the words I have spoken to you. Now remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, then you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So if you remain in me and my word remains in me, in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Because this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So now remain in my love. Well, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now we could keep going, and actually this conversation continues for a couple more chapters. I'm going to stop here because there's already enough for us to try to delve into this morning. I want to go to this first thing that Jesus says to his disciples. I am the true vine. Now, it may be that he's just kind of using the vine as an analogy, but interestingly, if you go back through the Old Testament, time and again, we see the nation of Israel referred to as a vine. You don't have to turn here, but in Psalm, chapter, in Psalm 80, this is just one example of dozens where Israel is referred to as a vine. We read in Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, the, the psalmist speaking to God, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea and its shoots as far as the river. One of multiple examples of the nation of Israel being this vine that God plants and cultivates. 
And the people of Israel really identified themselves as part of this vine simply because of their birth. Well, I've descended directly from Abraham, so therefore I am part of the vine. And then Jesus in, in this conversation says, no, 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 I am the true vine. My father, he's the gardener. And he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or cleans so that it will be even more fruitful. I remember a time that I was doing a wedding at a vineyard, and there were a lot of vines that were up on the trellises that they had gone and kind of taken care of, but there was this one particular grapevine that they had allowed to grow over an arbor, so you could walk under it and kind of sit under the shade of it. And it was lush and beautiful, gigantic grape leaves. And so my wife and I walked underneath this, and I remember specifically going, well, I'm not going to go steal grapes off of the vines out there, but I want to get some fruit from here just so I can say I ate some grapes from a vineyard. So I walk underneath it, and there's tons of foliage, but as I start to kind of look through it, there's very little fruit. And the fruit that I did find, these grape clusters were really small and looked emaciated, and there wasn't a whole lot of juice in the grapes. And of course, I had to eat some anyway, just so I could say that I did. Um, But I'm going, where's the fruit? And it turns out that when a grapevine is left to its own natural tendencies, it'll focus on producing foliage over fruit. Because to it, the foliage is what helps it perpetuate its life. The the leaves, the larger they get and the more of them that they are, can gather more sunlight, which is necessary for it to continue to grow and flourish and for it to perpetuate itself. The fruit is just a, a byproduct. But for the gardener who's trying to cultivate grapes, he has to literally train the vine to be able to be fruit bearing. And so he will go and if there are branches, if there's too many branches early on in the season, he'll actually clip away a bunch of those branches so that the vine is is not is not trying to support too many of them. And then of these branches that grow and as they as they start to produce foliage, he'll actually clip away excess foliage so that the vine can focus on pouring its energy into producing ripe, big fruit. But sometimes it'll even go to these branches and there will be way too many of these clusters of grapes. It's almost too fruitful or it's trying to produce too much different fruit. And so what he'll do is he'll actually clip away some of these early formation of the, the, the grape clusters so that the branch only has to support a few of them. It kind of makes me think about all of the things I like to say yes to right? Every, there's lots of good things out there. I like to say yes to everything, and, and I keep being reminded, everything I say yes to, I'm saying no to everything else I've already said yes to, because there's only so much of us to go around, and sometimes God's going, listen, I know it's a good thing, but this isn't what I'm calling you to, and every time you say yes to that, you're actually taking away energy from other areas that I have called you to, and so Jesus says, My father is the gardener and he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, he cleans, he takes away the excess foliage, he takes away the excess fruit so that you can focus on bearing the very best fruit you can so that you will be even more fruitful. And he says, you're already clean or pruned because of the words I have spoken to you. If you will simply do what I've shown you, if you will simply live out what I've encouraged you to do, what I've taught you as my disciples, you'll, be, you'll bear fruit. But then he goes on to something even more important. Because we focus on the pruning, we focus on kind of the discipline and stuff that helps shape us, and that's a very important component of, of being fruitful in our lives, of following Jesus. However, 
something even more important than that is our intimacy with God. I, I think of, <laughs> I, I've never been somebody who has been accused of having a green thumb. I have more of a brown thumb. Never touched a plant that I didn't turn to kindling eventually. But I, I, I have learned a few things over my lifetime about plants. For instance, I've learned that a plant needs to kind of stay connected to its roots. You can't just pull up a, a bush and, and take out the taproot because you want to try to plant it in your new home and expect for that plant to live. Learn that the hard way. I remember when I was a kid and I was playing football in my backyard and there was this big azalea bush and I went to go catch a pass and I smacked into the bush and I snapped off or almost broke off completely a huge section of that bush. But I didn't get caught, so I just kind of pushed it back into place and massaged it into place, took a couple other branches to hold on to it so it wouldn't fall down. No harm, no foul. Go back to playing, right? A couple of weeks later, you start seeing the effects of that. The, first, the flowers start wilting and then ultimately fall off. And then the leaves themselves start to wither and turn brown. And eventually, it's good for nothing but firewood. And it was obvious that that plant, or at least the section that had broken off, was dying. Why? Because it was separated from the roots. It was separated from the trunk. And it was the trunk that was supporting that branch, not the branch supporting the trunk. The only way that that branch was able to survive was because of its intimate connection to it. And Jesus basically says exactly the same thing to his disciples going on here. He uses the word mino, which we translate either remain or abide. And really the heartbeat of this is you need to remain interconnected to me. You need to stay in intimate relationship with me. You need to find your, your identity your purpose, even your, your sustenance from me. And from that, I will make you fruitful. He's going to use this term mino 11 times in about 13 verses. That's how important it is to him. And in this culture, when you want somebody to remember something, you repeat it over and over, and that's what he's doing here. He says in verse 4, Remain or abide in me, and I also in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide or remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, then you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, then you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Now, I read that, and it's easy for us to go, well, wait a minute, does this mean that if we aren't productive, if this means that if we're not trying, then we're not accepted into the family of God? Is my salvation dependent upon my effort? Well, first off, when we are interpreting Scripture, we have to not only interpret Scripture by the very words that are there, but by the whole breadth of Scripture. And time and again, we're told throughout Scripture, Jesus himself says, it is not by faith that we are saved. It's not, I'm, wait a minute, that's just wrong. It is not by our effort that we're saved. We can't do enough good things. Let me go ahead and dig myself out of this hole. Um, it is not by our efforts that we're saved. It is by faith you have been saved through grace, not by works, so that nobody can boast and say, look what I've done, what an amazing person I am. 
to try to think that, it, that we have to bear fruit in order to be part of the family of God, in order to earn our salvation, is tantamount to saying that a gardener would look at a, vine, or a branch and say, okay, that needs to bear a lot of good fruit before I'm going to graft it into the vine. That's backwards. It's only because the branch is grafted into the vine and has an intimate, life-bearing kind of a connection to the vine that it's actually able to bear fruit at all. And in fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians, you don't need to turn here. I'm just going to turn here really quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul actually talks in a very similar metaphor about our works, our efforts versus the production of it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he states, If anyone builds on the foundation of Christ using silver, gold, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work is going to be shown for what it is because the day of judgment is going to bring it to light. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we basically are brought to bear account for how we've spent our lives, the way we've invested them, it's going to be revealed with fire. And that fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what we have built, if our efforts and the fruit of our life survives because it's been based upon Jesus Christ and born out of the intimacy with him, then the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, then the builder will suffer a loss, but yet will be saved, even though it's only one escaping through the flames. In other words, this isn't a matter of salvation. This is a matter of what are we investing our lives towards? Are you trying to do things by your own strength, producing fruit through your sheer effort and trying to be a good person? Or is the fruit of our lives being born out of intimacy with Christ? Because Jesus says, if you're abiding in me, you're going to bear fruit naturally. It's just going to pour out of your life. But if you're trying to do this by your own strength, regardless of how well and how hard you work at it, at the end of the day, it's not going to stand the test. Verse 7. If you remain or abide in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Now, this is not suggesting that Jesus is saying, hey, God, the father will become your personal genie and he'll do anything you want. What he is saying is if you are finding your identity, your purpose, your sustenance in me. And the words that I've spoken have found purchase in your heart and you're actually living them out. Then what's going to happen is your heart is going to change. You are going to become more like me. Your will is going to be shaped and molded so that the things you desire are the things that God desires for you. That your will all pretty much becomes what God wills for you. So ask whatever it is that you want. God will give it to you because that's his purpose and his plan for you. As you remain in me and my word remains in you. He goes on in verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Again, we are not saved through our efforts. However, a natural product of our intimacy with Christ is fruit. Therefore, you look at your lives, you, you can get a pretty good finger on the pulse of how your intimacy with God is doing or other people perhaps do. Now, we don't want to put too much stock in good works because there's lots of people who do these things for the wrong reasons. We're going to talk about the fruit in a little bit. But suffice it to say the fruit is evidence of our intimacy with Christ. In the same way that God said, or Jesus said, 
They will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. Verse 9. He goes on. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain or abide in my love. Well, how do we do that, Jesus? If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide or remain in his love. We cannot get away from the fact that obedience is tied to our intimacy with Christ. When we obey, when we submit, when we say, I don't want you to just be my Savior, I want you to be my Lord. Yes, I know that you have taught me, shown me my Father's heart. I know that you speak into our hearts. I know that you've given us the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, our counselor, our advocate, to help guide and direct our choices. And when we submit to the Spirit within us, when we submit to your Word and put it into practice, we become better capable of recognizing God's voice better able of of recognizing his presence in our life. And the opposite is true. When we resist it, when we say, no, I'm the captain of my own ship, I don't need you to tell me what to do. Or when we just do things because that's what we're going to do and it doesn't matter what Jesus wants for us, it's like putting noise-canceling headphones on. And then we wonder why we can't hear his voice. Then we wonder why he feels so distant. It's not because God has abandoned us, it's because we have kind of turned from him and said, I'm, you know, we're like Schmeagel over hiding in the corner with our precious going, don't, don't get near me. You know, this is my precious. And we're afraid of him. We run from him. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And how did he love them? Well, he just showed them this type of sacrificial servant love by getting down on his knees and washing their feet, the act of the lowest of the low servants. And he said, in the same way, love one another. And in a little bit, he's going to show them the full extent of his love by going to the cross and dying for them. And he says in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. He's about to do this. And then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father. I've made known to you. Now, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. So that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And by the way, that that term fruit that will last That is the 11th use of the word mino, or remain. So fruit that won't just be there for a moment and wither and be gone. Fruit that won't get burned up in the flame of the day of judgment when God says, were you doing this by your own effort or mine? This is fruit that will remain eternally. And I've chosen you so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you because you will ultimately, your, your will, your desires, your prayers will be shaped by my heart for you. So this is my command. Love each other. So as we look at John 15, at least these 17 verses that we've looked at this morning, a couple of things. First off, Jesus says, absolutely, God, the Father, is going to shape and prune and disciple us. And sometimes that's not all, all that comfortable. No discipline seems comfortable in the moment. It's painful. And yet it'll produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those of us who are, be, who are trained by it, who submit to it, who say, have your way with us. And that's something that God keeps hammering into me. Our loving Father shapes and molds us in His image. 
so that we can be his representatives. But even more importantly than that shaping and molding, or I guess not more importantly, but more foundationally, is this idea that we absolutely need to remain intimately connected to Jesus. Now, he's not calling us when he calls us to obey. He's not interested in simply having blind servants who just do what he wants. Time and again throughout the the four Gospels, we see Jesus over and over saying, I'm not interested in people who just do things for me. I want relationship. I want intimacy. I want to know you. Probably the best example I can give you is the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus and his disciples show up at their house. Martha, the older sister, the hostess, goes into hostess mode. She's running around. She's getting stuff done. She's making food for them. She's making sure they're all comfortable. She's exhausted. She's frazzled. I know none of you have ever experienced that, but she was experiencing that that day. And then she looks over, and here's her little sister, sitting with Jesus amongst his disciples, listening, talking, interacting, and she's becoming more and more frustrated. How dare you, Mary, leave me to do all the work while I'm here slaving, and you're there relating. And so she goes finally to Jesus and goes, do you tell my sister to help me. And what does Jesus say? Martha... Martha, you are, you are so worried and concerned about so many things. But only one thing is truly necessary. Mary has chosen what's better, and I'm not about to take it from her. So relax. Take a load off. Jesus was more focused on relationship than he was on simple service. I guess the reality is, when I think about it, I tend to go just the opposite. I think that the best way that I can honor God is by doing lots of stuff in his name. And the reminder this morning is that serving God is not the same as abiding in him. Service flows out of our intimacy, but it is not the same thing as intimacy. And this is something that I am still learning right now. Because it's so much easier to do lots of things apart from an intimate relationship with Jesus. But there are passages that scare the dickens out of me. There's one in particular in the the book of Matthew. Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he says, listen, there will be many on the day of judgment who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? Didn't we drive out demons and heal people and feed multitudes? And then Jesus said, and I will look at them and I will say, depart from me, you evildoers, because I don't know you. It is possible for us to serve Jesus, call ourselves Christ followers, and yet never actually know him. Because we never actually took the time to build a relationship with him. We simply slapped the sticker of Christ follower on ourselves. Maybe went to church few times a uh, a month, prayed at meals, and that's it. We went through the motions but never actually got to know our Lord and Savior, never actually got our life-defining sustenance from Him. So what does it mean to abide? What does that look like? Well, let me tell you how I often approach it. I often approach it kind of like I do with my cell phone. My cell phone does not charge itself Internally, I have to plug it in. So I go over and I find a cable. Here's the vine. Here's the branch. And I plug it in. Maybe half an hour, 
in the morning five, six times a week. And then on Sundays, it needs an extra long charge, so I go for an hour and a half. And that pretty much suffices, right? And then, oh, you know, around Wednesday, I'm kind of getting a little empty, so I need to plug back in in a small group. That's, and that's how I get charged. And then what do I do? I disconnect from the vine, and I go about autonomously doing my own thing, carrying the charge that I got from him because all of my energy comes from God, but ultimately I'm doing it by my own strength. I'm doing it on my own autonomously. That's how I have approached my relationship with Jesus. What I hear Jesus saying in John chapter 15 is very different. He's saying, that's not abiding. That is getting something from me so you can go out and do your own thing. I want to remain connected with you. Abiding means to remain at all times. Like a branch that is so interconnected with the vine that you never disconnect it. You don't know where the vine ends and the branch begins because it's kind of woven in there. At all times we're interacting with Jesus or can because the reality is God is not found simply in this room. God is not found simply during our morning quiet times or whenever we end up taking them, if we end up taking them. God is not found during that simple little prayer when you are about to start a meal. God is in every single moment of our day. When you wake up in the morning, he's there, whether you recognize his presence or not. As you're going about getting ready, as you're brushing your teeth, God is there. As you're trying to get your children ready for school and out the door, God is there with you. As you're driving to work, as you get to work, as you walk through the doors and sit down at your desk, as you begin to do your work, whatever your work is, God is present with you in every moment of every day. There's one guy I know that really got this. His name was Brother Lawrence. I almost said Brother Francis, but that's incorrect. Brother Lawrence. He, he lived in a French monastery for the better part of his adult life. Now, he wasn't a monk or a friar. He didn't have the education to, to kind of reach that respected position. Instead, he lived there and he pretty much washed dishes or when he got older, fixed shoes for most of his life. And yet, Brother Lawrence understood that God was available in every single moment of every single day. And he recognized that he was just as close to God as he was washing dishes as he was when he was on his knees during a worship service. God was just as present. He could worship him just as readily and have just as close a communion with God any time, any place. Can we throw that quote up there? This is from Brother Lawrence from The Practice of the Presence of God. He says, for me, the time of business does not differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and the clatter of my kitchen while serving, or while several persons are at the same time calling for different things in the hubbub, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. It makes no difference if I'm here at church or I'm at the park with my kids or I'm laying down to go to bed at night, or if I'm sitting in traffic on the way to L.A. makes no difference. God is equally as present, and I have the ability to practice His presence even there. That's what it means to abide, to recognize that God is present in any and every moment of our lives. And I'll be the first to say, I need to hear this. Because far too often, I approach my relationship with God as if I am this phone. And all I need to do is plug in every once in a while when I feel my battery getting a little low. 
Jesus is calling us to a more intimate, more real, more holistic relationship with him. Where we find our identity in him. Where we find our purpose in him. Where we find our sustenance in every moment. Where we find the direction of how to respond to somebody when they cut us off. Or how to respond to somebody when they ask us a question. What do you do? And it's like, well, what do I share? You know, what's with you? What's different about you? In those moments, what do we do? Well, if we recognize that God is with us, then in those moments, he has the ability to guide and direct us. But we have to be aware of his presence. We have to acknowledge his presence and invite him into the conversation. Otherwise, we are pretty much being autonomous captains of our own ship, even though we may pay him lip service. And so we're going to go into a time of worship right now. We're going to go into a time of response. And as we do this, you know know what? One second, Pete, because I forgot one thing. Shocking, I know. Because Jesus said, if you abide in me, what will happen? I'll abide in you. And then what, what will be the product of that? Fruit, right? Our lives will naturally bear fruit, which then begs the question, well, what kind of fruit are we talking about? Are we talking about lots of good, like, building houses in Mexico? Are we talking about picking up people on the side of the road and going and getting them meals? Are we talking about driving out demons? What? Maybe, sure. Yeah, that can be a product of our intimate relationship with God. But I think it more importantly, we tend to look at the outside. We tend to look at what we do. But God looks at the heart. He looks at the motivations behind what we do. And so I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Last section we're going to look at this morning before then I finally let Pete come up here. Because in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul wrestles with the type of fruit that our lives produce as we abide in different things. He, he first looks at the fruit that, look, that when we abide in our own natural human tendencies. What kind of fruit is produced by that? And then the second list that we're going to look at is the fruit that comes with interacting with the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given us and abiding in Christ. So he says in Galatians chapter 5, the acts of the flesh, the fruit of submitting to your flesh is obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, basically impurity of your mind and impurity of your actions. Idolatry and witchcraft, basically worshiping created things and trying to take control over nature. Hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Things that tear at the fabric of our relationships with one another. Drunkenness and orgies and the like. And he says, I warned you, as I've done before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. When we give ourselves over to our flesh, the fruit of that is emptiness. But... The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of abiding in Christ is first off love. You will be known as my disciples if you love one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness and self-control. And against such things as this, there is no law. They don't have to be mandated. They don't have to be, there are not rules attached to them. They are just a natural outflow. We can't produce these things by our own sheer effort. These are a natural byproduct of our intimacy, of our remaining connected to the vine. If we can abide in Christ, and I've been practicing it intentionally this week, what does it look like to recognize that God is present even here and now? When I'm driving in the car, when I've got my kids there, I found that I have been turning on the radio a lot less and being more present with them. I have a desire to know what's going on with them. I found I'm far more patient and kind with the people I come in contact with, particularly those who want to interrupt me. I'm much more interruptible as I've been practicing the presence of God in my life this week because I recognize that if God is present, he could use me in any moment. When I'm at the gym, I had one of the best conversations at the gym yesterday that I can remember. I'm not going to go into it right now, but it was awesome and it was completely unexpected because I was interruptible. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I mean, think about joy and peace in the midst of any and every circumstances to be able to find joy because joy is not tied to our circumstances. It is, a, it is a condition of the heart. Happiness tends to be tied to our circumstances. Joy is a product of our connection with Christ in any and every circumstance. We can have peace in the midst of the unknown if we know that our identity is found in Christ and even though we will have trouble in this world, he's overcome the world and whatever our circumstances, it will not get the last word we'll find that we have more self-control. I know none of us need that, but that's offered anyway if you find yourself abiding more intimately with Christ. So, I invite you up, Pete. The heart of this message, the, the reminder for all of us, my, first myself and then to the rest of you I share this, is that we do not need to go about as if we're cell phones that just need to get a quick charge and then we are autonomous captains of our own ship, serving Christ. We get to be friends. We are invited into a much more intimate relationship with him. A relationship called friendship. One in which we get to just have a conversation throughout the day. We get to bring anything and everything that's going on in our lives. I don't know what those... those, I love you, John Whiteman. You're not talking to me, are you? Okay. Sorry, ADD. Anyway, long story short... We are invited into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we learn to rest in his constant presence, it'll have a natural byproduct of producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so right now, as we go into a time of worship, I want want to invite you to practice God's presence right here and now. He's not just found here. He was with you before you got here. He's going to be with you when you go. But right now, I want to invite you to respond however you see fit. As they begin to play, maybe the most natural response for you is to sit in your seat and just recognize God's presence. Get reconnected. Maybe you want to respond by getting down on your knees. If so, there's plenty of space up here. I invite you to join me up here. Maybe you want to stand and raise your hands as a declaration of your gratitude and your love for Him. Whatever. However you want to respond is fine. But let's just remember that God is here right now. Let's spend some time being with them. Bow your heads with me. Father, I love you. 
I thank you, Jesus, that you invite us into something far more than just a bunch of rules, far more than just a bunch of to-dos. You invite us into an intimate relationship that's not just for a couple hours on a Sunday and then for a few minutes in the mornings. You invite us into a relationship that permeates every moment of every single day. We want, we desire, we hunger and thirst for greater intimacy with you. We hunger and thirst for that abiding relationship. So would you draw near to us? Would you sweep aside anything that would hinder that intimacy? Would you convict? Would you encourage? Would you fill us up and ultimately have your way with us so that our very lives would proclaim your goodness as we just do life with you? pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.